Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology, study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh. They say it's not practical enough Uh Just give me Jesus, that will be enough That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key It's following the Bible storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts, he finishes with dedication A work of art, from Genesis to Revelation From God's creation To man's fall, to redemption, to consummation His designs and structure, each time will fluster What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. You, Lord. He gave us the word, providing us correction in the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections, so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a 
statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I'm your host, Devin Palou. We've got a good store, a good show in store for you guys today. Glad you're able to uh, make it with us. Hope you guys have all had a good week, wherever wherever it is you are. And so here we are into October, which just happens to be my my favorite month of the year. And um we are going to be dedicating the month of October to the Protestant Reformation, and a lot of a lot of Protestants uh, don't really know a whole lot about the history of the Reformation, why it was needed, and kind of how it's relevant still today. So we're going to be looking at some of those issues over the next few months, uh, a few weeks, I should say. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the history of the Protestant Reformation, kind of some of the events that happened before, during, and after, as well as some of the the key characters and some of the main players in the Reformation. Next week, we plan to do a full two hours on the doctrine of Sola Scriptura and get into some of these uh, doctrinal issues that really um, played a, a big key in the Reformation. And we invite people to call in, and of course you don't have to agree with us, uh, but we would like, you know, rational dialogue and, and discussion. And so we'll look at kind of what the teaching of Sola Scriptura is, and some of the common objections that come against it, and why Protestants need to stand firm on that uh, today. And then after that, we will be looking at Sola Fide, Faith Alone and contrasting that with the Roman Catholic view. And we'll also be be taking calls and uh, inviting people to call in. And then the last Thursday in the month, it actually falls on October 31st, Reformation Day, be cool. Uh, We will be replaying the debate that we did with uh, good friend uh, Nathan Taylor and Catholic apologist Devin Rose, Uh, the debate that we did on... Uh, Sola Scriptura. So it's going to be a, be a good month. We're going to be we're going to be pretty packed. So I invite you guys to to listen and share it on your Facebook or wherever you share it, and let people know. And uh, if you have some Catholics uh, that are that are friends, uh, maybe they want to listen in or have some dialogue. We'd love to love to talk with them. So before we start, real quick, let me go ahead and give our Facebook page. For those who are interested in that, uh, we have all of our podcasts up on that page. We put videos and articles through the week uh, dealing with apologetic and theological issues. So feel free to to go there. It's facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. And you'll find uh, a lot of our stuff there. So as we open the show, I've got, we actually have two guests uh, on with us today. 
and uh, really excited to have these gentlemen on. And the uh, go ahead and introduce our first guest is going to be Reverend Kent Morlock. I hope that's I hope I spelled that name right or said that name right. Uh, he's a teaching elder at Richland Presbyterian Church. It's a Associate Reformed Presbyterian in the historic Rosemark, uh, Rosemark Tennessee. Uh, Reverend Morlock received his Master's of Arts of Theology at the Talbot School of Theology and his Master's of Divinity from San Francisco Theological Seminary. Also, we will be having Seth Stark on the air with us. He currently resides in central Illinois. Seth served as a ruling elder at a congregation of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in Orange County. And he holds a master's degree in science and religion from Biola University. So this should be a very good show as we look into some of these topics. So, gentlemen, are you there? Kent Morley, I'm here. This is Seth. All right, that's that's one of the problems with you know you're doing radio and uh, and you got three people on the line. Sometimes we'll be talking over each other, so <laughs> I apologize if I if I talk over you guys at all. No problem. So with that being said, uh, Kent, would you like to tell us a little more about yourself, or how would you uh, did I leave any any details out? Oh, the details are minor. <laughs> But uh, I, I'm a, a ch- former church planter with the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and now I took a call to a, a historic uh, church here just north of Memphis. So I'm here with my family and enjoying a new um, season of ministry here in Tennessee. Uh, great. And uh, Seth, how about yourself? Yeah, um, I mean, you covered the basics, but uh, I was uh, part of the church that Kent was planting in in Orange County um, and uh, lived my whole life in California, up in Northern California, grew up there, and then moved kind of Southern California to go to uh, grad school. And then... Uh, I, think, uh, I think one of you guys may have your, your, uh, your the radio or the computer on. You might want to shut that off because it gives some interference yeah, back. To... Figure that out. Sorry about that. <laughs> it guy. happens. There it is. Oh, that's that's okay. no problem at all. It happens all the time. Go ahead. Sorry about that, Seth. Oh, no, that's no problem. Um, anyway, grew up in Northern California, moved down to Southern California to go to grad school at Biola, and then uh, just about a year ago uh, moved out of California to uh, Central Illinois. I live in Decatur, Illinois now. And... Uh, um, yeah, I live here with my wife and four children, and have been enjoying the uh, the different atmosphere here in in Central Illinois as opposed to Southern California. Well, great! I really do appreciate uh, having both of you both of you gentlemen on. It's it really is an honor. We uh, we've never had uh, you guys on uh, on the show before, but uh, we're we're definitely glad to have you guys. So, let me ask you guys this: Why should Protestants today, why should we even care about the Reformation? Most of the time, if you bring up Martin Luther, uh, it's it's kind of they immediately think of Martin Luther King and <laughs> wouldn't even have a a clue of uh, Martin Luther in their in the past. Why should why should we as Protestants uh, care about this today? You guys are both pastors and uh, deal with 
you know, congregations and, and shepherding people's souls. What are some of the reasons we should care about the Protestant Reformation? And Pastor Kent, I'll I'll let you go first if you want. Right. The event of fifteen seventeen is classified as the Protestant Reformation, but we need to acknowledge that Reformation movements are always happening. And you know, for Martin Luther in his day, he was called a Hussite. He was named after an earlier reformer who was trying to get back to what the scriptures said, wanted to debate, and I'm speaking of John Huss or Jan Hus, who um, ended up being executed by the Roman Catholic Church at the time. But even before John Huss, there was someone else, and before him was someone else. And the word reformation uh, really has its roots in in the words of repentance, that the church needs to wake up, repent where it starts veering away from God's word and needs to come back to the scripture as an authority. It needs to come back to the, the true marks of the church. And so the classic statement of a reformed church, if you will, is to be reforming and always reforming in light of God's word. We just have this tendency to want to you know, add strange fire to our, you know, churches and our ministries and our theologies, and we just Ooh. always need to be returning back to the Scripture. And so the events with Martin Luther in 1517 really became global at that point. There was, in God's providence, a lot of things that came together politically, religiously, and it really took hold at that point, it became a worldwide concern. But it's something that we ought always do as Christians. We should be reforming. <coughs> Sorry about that. I'm not joke. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, I get people worked up like that when I... <laughs> yeah, well, that happens. <laughs> How about you, Pastor Seth? How about uh, telling us a little bit about why we should care about uh, the Reformation today? Well, let me let me just uh, correct you on one small thing, real quick. I'm I'm not a pastor, and uh, I don't want uh, I don't want to get nasty emails from Kent after the show if I don't correct you on that. No, just kidding. He wouldn't do that. Okay. But uh, okay. I served as a ruling my, my a ruling God. elder. Uh, no, it's no problem. No, well, I think the very fact, if you want to ask the question, why does the Protestant Reformation? Why should we, as evangelical American Christians, even care about the Protestant Reformation? Well, the fact that we can get together and talk about the theology, the history of the Reformation, that's one reason right there. Without the Protestant Reformation, we would be in trouble for even discussing these topics of theology if we weren't part of the priestly class of Roman Catholic uh, priests and bishops. Uh, we have to remember, wow. at the time of the Reformation, it was not, not only was it not common, but in most of... Uh, Christendom, most of Europe, you weren't even allowed to own a copy of the Bible. It was one of the biggest complaints that the Roman Catholics had against Martin Luther because of his, I mean, Martin Luther just wrote tons and tons and tons of material, and the invention of the printing press coinciding with the time of the Reformation mm -hmm. had this explosion of literature that was unseen before the beginning of the 16th century. It was unheard of. Um, 
So that one reason why you should care about the Protestant Reformation today is if you like talking about theology, or if you like talking, not even theology, if you just like talking about who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then you need to care about the Protestant Reformation. I think that's, that's one really important point. Um, one other thing, as I was, I was brushing up a little bit, preparing for today's show, uh, have you ever seen the, the, the bumper sticker that says, if you can read this bumper sticker, thank, thank a veteran? I've seen those bumper stickers around. Um, and, you know, it's, it's saying that we should express our, our thanks to those who have uh, served in the armed forces to defend our freedom. But I think that as a Protestant, one of the things that I could put on a bumper sticker is, if you can read this, thank a reformer because there was an extremely wow. heavy emphasis on education that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, Martin Luther, let me see if I can find it real quick. Martin Luther said that parents who, who don't see to their children's education were, and this is a quote now, um, shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are no parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. I mean, that's, that's typical <laughs> Luther right there. Yeah. The importance of educating your children, the, the Westminster Assembly, they also put a heavy emphasis in their directory for public worship on, if you don't know how to read, learn how to read. Teach your children how to read. Wow. And, of course, the ultimate reason for all that is so that you can participate in the public worship of God in your own language, not in Latin, and so you can read the scriptures in your home, even if you're not a priest, if you're just, if you're just a normal Christian. So if, if someone is listening to the show right now and they own a Bible and occasionally they read it and they go to church on Sunday or on some Sundays, like most Americans, and the service is conducted in a language that they understand, well, those are really good reasons right there why you ought to be interested in the Protestant Reformation. That is, that is awesome. I actually I never thought about it like that, but that is, man, that is... That is right on the money. You know, things that we just take for granted today uh, may not have had the, the liberty to do that, you know, at one time. So that's that's amazing. Let's talk maybe about some of the events and that, that led up to the Reformation. We got a little over an hour and a half, so we got plenty of time. And uh, I'll I'll let either one of you gentlemen decide who who wants to go first, and maybe we can just have a have a dialogue on this. Well, I'll defer to Kent. I'll let him go first. Well, oh, okay. I didn't know if that was leading up to a question, or you're just you're just asking for some of the historical background. Yeah, yeah. What you know, for those maybe who are not familiar with it, uh, what were some of the events that, that that led up to the Reformation? Well, again, um, you had mentioned Martin Luther, and he's a pivotal character to the story, and he has uh, a tremendous testimony. Can I say that? His uh, life and ministry um, was born out of his real desire to, well, I'll put it this way, he wanted to be close to God and he wanted to be assured that he had salvation. And he thought in his day that the only way that he could acquire those, you know, that status was to become a priest. His His parents had already had him lined up to become a lawyer. He had sort of a... Um, uh, a lightning in the forest, uh, not a conversion, but a commitment saying, God, if you save me from this um, storm, I will become a monk. 
and he becomes a monk and then has access to the scriptures and has access to all of the details of the Roman Catholic Church. And then comes true confliction for him as he studies. He's reading one thing and he's seeing the practices of the church being expressed contrary to what he's reading. So in his life, he really bears this this trial of the soul, and and apart from that, he he becomes very cynical and critical about some of the activities of the Roman Catholic Church, and most people like to point out the practice of selling indulgences, and he gets to a point where he says, I just need to debate this with my peers. So the famous incident on October 31st was Martin Luther nailing 95 points of debate, the 95 theses, on on the Wittenberg Castle door. Um, And he wrote it in Latin and thought that the educated parties of his day would want to take up his discussion points, but it gets translated, it gets republished, and then starts spreading all over, I guess that would be Saxony, and makes its all, all, all its way to the Pope. And <laughs> So um, the Protestant Reformation was really a personal ordeal of a one person wanting to figure out how come when he reads the Bible, the church that's supposed to be the Bride of Christ is not reflecting what he's reading in the scriptures. Seth, you'd like to add to that? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I think that's a great uh, summary of um, of Luther up until, you know, he nails those 95 theses on that chapel door, October 31st, 1517. A couple of things that I think kind of slip through the cracks uh, when most people think about the beginning of the Reformation is, is first of all, Luther, I don't, I think it's important to emphasize that Luther didn't set out to split the Roman Catholic Church. Right. He was a, an academic. He was a doctor of theology. He was, a, I mean, a, the equivalent is a modern-day professor of theology at a seminary, who wow. says, you know, I I see some things wrong in the church. I'm gonna I'm gonna propose a public discussion about these uh, about these topics. I'm gonna list them out as 95 theses. He does. If you if you read the 95 theses, they're very uh, good points of debate. He, even within that short document, he makes a good argument for what his ultimate uh, his ultimate points are in those 95 theses. Um, but he didn't he didn't set out to split the Roman Catholic Church. He Martin Luther up until that point had been a good Roman Catholic. He loved the church. He was a, a monk. He had entered into uh, the study of theology because of his love of Theology, his love of God, his love of the church. I, I get the sense that Luther was probably very surprised by the reaction that his proposal for debate uh, engendered in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, of course, he he touched on a very sensitive topic, and even today, Roman Catholic Church or Protestant Church, if you want to get somebody mad at you, you go after the purse strings, right? And that's what Luther is touching on when he when he. Uh, when he says basically the, the sales of indulgences are not Christian practice, 
that the Pope, if he has the power to forgive sins, he can get everyone out of purgatory without anyone ever paying a penny, and he ought to do so out of Christian love. Mm-hmm. And this throws into confusion, uh, I think, all of these elements that had been mixing in Germany and in the rest of Europe for several centuries. As we look further back in history, um, Kent mentioned earlier uh, John Huss. There had been other reformers uh, before Huss. Uh, John Wycliffe was uh, was one in England who um, he had preached. I mean, we go and look at what Wycliffe preached, and then you compare it to the guys that are around in the 16th century, Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli, it's remarkably similar. The the doctrines that that Wycliffe, 300 years earlier, was preaching when he says, look, this idea that Roman Catholic priests, uh, or just priests in general, should be these basically noblemen, this rich gentry, uh, instead of humble Christian servants, this is not right. And the idea that the people have to go through the church in order to have access to God, that's not right either. We can have access to God through the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a message that we see preached uh, you know, throughout church history. That sometimes greater, sometimes lesser uh, numbers are adhering to this message, but there's always this chain of what we would call Protestantism, that wouldn't get that name until the Protestant Reformation, but this chain of Protestantism running throughout church history, and Luther just happens upon this particular moment in history where everything comes together, uh, in God's providence, of course, for this explosion of Protestant thinking, whereas before, uh, Wycliffe, you know, he had several hundred, probably thousands of followers in England, and they waxed and waned over time. Same thing with John Huss and other earlier um, reformers, attempted reformers, but now with the printing press, um, with political situations going on throughout Europe, all of a sudden this monk stands up and says, you know, we need to question the idea that we need to be sending money to Rome in order to have our sins forgiven or the sins of our deceased relatives who are waiting in purgatory forgiven. This doesn't seem right. And, and, and you know, Martin Luther's point is that the just shall live by faith. That's the verse that really convicts him and changes his mind about about who God is, ultimately. Up until that point, Luther had this view of God's righteousness as something to be feared. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why Luther had this reputation of you know, going into confession and just confessing and confessing and confessing, because he really truly believed that in order for his sins to be forgiven, he needed to confess everything to the priest. And, you know, the, the, the stories are that the priests and the monks who he would confess to would just get sick of it. They wouldn't want to hear Luther's confessions anymore. But wow. Luther was trying to do what he thought had to be done in order to have his sins forgiven. And so when he comes right. to Romans chapter 1 and he says, the just shall live by faith, it, it's, this, it's this light bulb going on. It's this aha moment. And he wants other people to know this. And, and he looks around and he sees the sales of indulgences. You have to pay money to have your sins forgiven in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And he says, this, this doesn't jive with what I see in Scripture. And, and a lot of other people, there's, I mean, we talk about the history and the politics, but spiritually there's this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit at that time. And there's a revival that spreads out across Europe as people return to Scripture and they start to study scripture for the first time. Even even some of the priests 
studying scripture uh, for the first times ever. It wasn't just the laity that is rebelling, if you will, against the Roman Catholic Church. It's priests as well that are opening their Bibles, reading it sometimes for the first time, because you have to understand that there's also this horrible scourge of uneducated clergy throughout Europe at that time. Um, and, and the people are returning to Scripture, and they're seeing exactly what Kent mentioned, that what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church is not what the Bible says should be going on in the Church. And that's how this Protestant Reformation catches fire. Uh, there's a heavy, so, me, heavy emphasis on returning back to Scripture, and we see translations of the Bible into various languages at this time mm-hmm. uh, that, that continue to fuel that. Let me let me ask this then: Was it Luther's uh, kind of that the 95 theses there? Is that what what kind of made people kind of like slap them in the face to make them um, wake up and realize a lot of what was being taught or um, given as as uh, you know, Christian doctrine was in fact really not ra- grounded or or rooted in in Scripture. Was it was it kind of his was it his stuff that kind of put the spotlight on that to make people wake up and see that? Because it, it would seem like you know those type of teachings must have been going on for some time uh, for the people just to kind of be you know what I mean, just kind of accepting it without question and not thinking about some of these things. What was it? I'm just wondering so much about Luther that uh, you know he writes he writes the, the theses and then you know the Pope gets hold of it. Um, I, I guess kind of going back to what you're saying with the with the power of the, the Holy Spirit was really at work mm-hmm. there as well. Well, Pastor the, King, the Reformation ahead. is is the Reformation is the recapture of a lot of things, and Seth articulated some of those very well. Although I, I want to come back to something you said about indulgences and what, what that really represents. Because um, if a good Catholic's listening, he's going to get upset at what one thing. We just have to clarify something. But, um, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church it had this title, the Holy Roman Empire. And I think even in our day, we start recognizing what happens when government gets too big <laughs> and wants to run everything an air of cynicism comes over the land. And I think that was something that contributed to the to the time and the era of Martin Luther. So he writes a, a challenging statement, and what is being challenged? Authority. Who is the true authority? And this is a Reformation question all the time in, in so much of our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of how the church ought to be structured, um, how we do apologetics, and just and and here's Martin Luther saying, you know, I've been to Rome, I I went there to have a spiritual pilgrimage to sort of bring to ease my doubts of of what I'm reading in the scriptures, and I go to Rome and I see the worst display of Christianity that I've ever seen. <laughs> I I. Rome is a cesspool. It it has it's not Zion. It does it, nothing's being redeemed there. I I go to masses and I hear priests, you know, reciting the the litur- liturgy for the mass in in seconds, and they just want to wham bam, thank you, ma'am, and and uh, priests were having contests or how fast they could go through the liturgy. So uh, a number of things and abuses were kind of 
filtering its way throughout the the whole empire. And, and so now Martin Luther gives voice to what I think was part of the cynicism. I mean, if someone coins the limerick, when a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs, that kind of tells you how far you know, the Roman Catholic Church had gone. And and even to this day, you can a Roman Catholic will have to admit that reforms took place in their church as a result of the Protestant Reformation. So <laughs> not only did it uh, give voice to Protestants, but it also led to a host of all kinds of changes in the Roman Catholic Church because it just went too far. Hey, Kent, you said you wanted to correct something I said about indulgences. Well, I think you had mentioned that the paying of money would um, forgive someone's sins, and it was, I guess that's a roundabout way of affirming the case that the the money was supposed to shorten someone's time in purgatory. So it's a, it's, I guess that's a matter of being clearly articulating what they think that is. Because they would no, say... No, you're right. Oh, yeah. So that's all I want to say. Okay, thanks. Okay, so I guess up to this point, then, Luther uh, nailed his, uh, the 95 Theses and kind of walk us through, you guys, kind of what, what happens uh, maybe from there. I know he, uh, he ends up being challenged and threatened and these, these type of things. Kind of walk us, walk us through that a little bit So he, after, after he does that. How, does that. how did that get back to the Pope? I mean, he must have had a pretty good following um, I guess I would guess at that point, right? Well, I would say first of all, Seth nailed it about the money trail comment, and when okay. um, Tetzel was the name of the man who was out in Luther's area, saying, you know, the people aren't buying the indulgences anymore, we've got trouble, and so that's when I think Martin Luther gets on the radar for Pope Leo. Yeah, exactly. When the when the money stops flowing into Rome, uh, that's when they take notice. Wait a minute, what's what's going on? Something's you know affecting this flow of income for the Roman Catholic Church at this point. And uh, and yeah, we get over. I, I guess that that takes place over about four years. And then in 1521 is when Luther is called before the Holy Roman Emperor himself uh, at the Diet of Worms. And this is a, an extremely important uh, point in the Protestant Reformation where Luther is called before the, the most powerful man in the world, really. Uh, this guy, his list of titles go on and on and on. He, he actually controlled more of Europe than any Holy Roman Emperor since Charlemagne himself, who was his ancestor. Wow. And here Luther is called into this room. I'm, if you've seen the movie Luther, they probably did it a little bit there. It was actually probably a smaller room, but a lot of people in the room. And that, to me, makes it a little more terrifying <laughs> to be in a, a small room. The most powerful man in the world is standing right in front of you. He's got bishops and cardinals and priests and archbishops surrounding him, church lawyers. Uh, and he doesn't speak German. He's the Holy Roman Emperor, but he doesn't speak German. And Luther speaks German. So everything that Luther says is translated for the emperor. And wow. this is the, the scene where Luther is all, 
he comes into the room and all of Luther's printed works are piled in the room. And it said that the pile was so large that when the emperor himself walked into the room, he did not believe that one man was capable of producing all of these works. Wow. Which is a testament, it's a testament both to Luther himself and how industrious he was, and also to the invention of the printing press and how quickly his works were disseminated amongst the people because they could be reproduced so much quicker than having to hand write every single copy of everything Luther uh, wrote or mm -hmm. preached. So Luther comes uh, into the room. He's basically asked to recant, and he says, can I have a day to think about it, is what he says when he's first brought in. And so they say yes, hesitantly. They don't want to give him more time, but they give him a day. Luther comes back the next day, and uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, the, uh, the church lawyer... Uh, asks him, he says, come then, answer the question for his majesty, whose kindness you have experienced in seeking a time for thought. Do you wish to defend all your acknowledged books or to retract some? And, of course, the point here is you need to retract. Keep in mind, John Huss had had a similar point put to him, uh, what, less than 100 years before, I believe. And what had happened with John Huss, he had come under a uh, a papal assurance of safe conduct to this to this conference, and he had defended his works before the church court at that point. And at the conclusion of the conference, the church court had said, "You know what, Huss, you're a heretic, and we don't have to give uh, safe conduct to heretics." And so they they execute him. I'm sure that is in Luther's mind. Luther is aware of the history here, as sure. this question is finally put to him. So he's in he's in a tight spot. <laughs> you know, if I if I recant, there's no assurance of my safety. If I don't recant, there's certainly no assurance of my safety. And uh, and Luther answers, I think, in uh, in a very wise manner. Uh, he says, you know, that his works are divided into into three uh, categories. Um, let's see here. He says there's there's works that have to do with just general Christian piety, how, how Christians ought to lead holy lives. He says, I don't see how anyone could, oppose, could be opposed to me saying that Christians need to lead holy, holy lives. So the second class of my works is divided into works concerning abuses in the church. And I don't see how even the Pope can say that there are no abuses in the church or that those abuses should be stopped. And so I don't recant those also either. And he says the third group is, is a group that I admit I may have been a little too harsh in my dealings uh, with some people, and I would, uh, you know, I would take those back if, if I can be shown those works. And so what, what's Luther's answer to do you recant? It's a, it's a, uh, his answer really is it's a classic Protestant answer. The answer is show me what I've done wrong. And I think that's a, a fair statement for any Protestant to, to ask when they're confronted with church authority. I think it's something that as an elder and, and Kent as a pastor, we're very careful to be about uh, in the course of shepherding and discipling folks. We don't want to just arbitrarily tell someone, I'm just going to throw out a, a strange example. You can't drink coffee anymore because it's not Christian to drink coffee, as, as I sit my Starbucks here. Uh, because the right, 
the right question for a Christian to ask is, well, can you show me why I shouldn't drink coffee? And that's always an appropriate question for a Christian to ask, and that's what Luther asks at the Diet of Worms. Hey, guys, if I've done something wrong, please show me what I've done wrong. I'll be the first one to throw my books into the fire, he says, if, if you can show me uh, what I've done wrong. And, of course, they're not happy, uh, they're not happy with his answer at all. Um, and he says, uh, uh, what, what's his final word here? Um, Luther says that when, when they respond, that they want a straight answer out of him. They don't want a split answer. A horned answer is, is how they, they say it. You know, we don't want you to answer by the bulls of the horn. Give us a straight answer. Do you recant or not, Luther? And that's when he says that, and I quote, since then your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer, I will give it in this man- manner, neither horned nor toothed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And in the words of church historian Mark Knoll, Protestantism was born. Because Luther appealed to the authority of Scripture and to the authority of his own conscience, two, two authorities that had been long neglected in the church. And the, the Diet of Worms ends. Luther is whisked away by the uh, elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, uh, to a castle. He's holed up there for a while. And Luther begins working on what is another foundational uh, aspect of Protestantism, a German translation of the Bible. Luther understood that people had to have Scripture. Luther just appealed to the authority of Scripture. How can other Christians appeal to the authority of Scripture if they don't know what it says? And so Luther begins work on a German translation of the Bible. And Luther's Reformation spreads. It doesn't stay in this region of Germany. It spreads throughout Europe. It catches on in England, uh, in France, in Switzerland, uh, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and all over Europe, similar uh, preachers begin preaching the doctrines of Luther um, and, and, and the doctrine of the authority of Scripture as the final authority in the church. It begins to spread throughout Europe, and people begin reforming the church and, of course, facing the consequences of that in subsequent mm-hmm. years. Do you have anything to add to that, Pastor Ken? No, I just think that was excellent. Well, thank you. So do I. That was <laughs> that was good. Do you guys mind if we we take maybe a look at some of the some of the things that Luther had was was um, kind of protesting against some of the theses? Yeah, you have a list there. I do actually. Yeah, I'm sitting in front of my computer here, so. Probably won't hit all 95, but <laughs> I thought maybe we could, we could hit a few of these just to kind of give people a context, maybe of what um, what he was uh, kind of going against, and then maybe we could also talk about some of the doctrine that was recovered uh, in in the Reformation as well. Mm. Great, absolutely. Uh, yeah, one of the the first one here listed it says, "When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent." He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Yeah, that's number one. 
right? That's the first of the right. 95 theses. Yeah, and so here's sort of the scope of Reformation. It's time to repent, and and we don't we we presume on God by artificially uh, making new ways of repentance. You know, you, in the Roman Catholic Church, you go to your priest and you say you've done these things that are wrong, and he says, okay, well, you will be forgiven if you, you know, pay this and and flagellate yourself and, and you know, some some prescription. And so after a while, what is sin for you but just something you can do and buy it off with some kind of holy chore? And it's not a real true repentance of the heart. It's not the hatred of your sin. It's not the commitment to live in a new obedience to righteousness, it's just <laughs> kind of a, a scale of what you can and cannot do and what you can afford to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Seth, did you have anything to add to that? Um, well, I, I think adding on to what Kent said, another big emphasis of the Reformation and of every single reformer is Christian piety, and and if your listeners are unaware of what that term means, it means living a holy life. Um, there's yes, there's political things that are going on in Europe. There is a an, this idea now that scripture needs to be propagated in the common language of every people so that everyone can have access to it. But the end result of all that, of what the reformers are preaching, is for you Christian to live a holy life as a result of knowing what God has done to you. This is this is uh, written down all over the Reformation. I mean, Heidelberg Catechism, which is a German document uh, produced later on, a, a few decades after Luther, uh, elaborates on this point that says, you know, the three things that I need to know in order to uh, live and die as a happy Christian are how great my sin and misery is, how I'm saved from my sin and misery, and how I'm supposed to be thankful and live my life in thankfulness because I've been saved from my sin and misery. And so Luther, in this very first of his 95 theses, is making that point that will be repeated over and over and over again, and it's still repeated today in Reformed and Lutheran and Protestant churches. When, right. when Jesus said repent, he didn't mean stop what you're doing right now and then tomorrow go back to it. He meant go and sin no more. He called, he's not, Jesus is not Lord and Master over that one moment of repentance. He is Lord and Master over your entire life, and you are his servant. And you need to be living a life that reflects that fact if you are, in fact, a Christian. I like that. That is, that is absolutely, absolutely gospel truth right there. Let me give the number out for those who are interested in calling in. Uh, the number is 760 760- Five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven, and again, of course, you don't have to agree with us uh, to call in. I mean, if you have a difference of uh, opinion or comment, we'd love absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, on this number uh, number six uh, says the Pope himself cannot remit guilt, but only declare and confirm that it has been remitted by God or at most he can remit in cases reserved to his uh, discretion. Except for these cases, the guilt remains untouched. 
what would you guys what would you guys say to that? What kind of what was I guess the thought of the day in in the Catholic Church? Well, the Pope, in from their perspective, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. He is the visible manifestation of the rule of Christ on earth. That's why he sits on a throne. <laughs> That's why he is in a basilica, which is different than a cathedral. I mean, that is a a kingdom outpost of of where Christ rules. So Mar- Martin Luther recognized that the Pope was assuming to himself more power and authority than he ought. And... Um, to, I mean, this is a classic Protestant verse that people memorize. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. And um, the Pope had somehow gotten to the place where you didn't get to Jesus until unless you went through him. And that's the usurpation of authority. <laughs> so um, the Pope's judgment over his authority was erring, and that needed to be reformed. Seth, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Um, just just briefly, I think it's important to remember that, that Luther, in addition to being a brilliant theologian, he was also a brilliant student of canon law. Uh, Luther had this annoying tendency to quote church councils against the church. Uh and so when he talks about the fact that the Pope himself cannot remit guilt, uh, can only can declare and confirm what's been remitted by God, Luther's not only appealing to Scripture, but he's appealing to canon law, to church history, to what the councils have decided as well. And that's, um, that's an important aspect to remember, that Luther uh, wages this double-edged sword of Scripture and canon law against the Roman Catholic Church. He, he's using, when he was before the Diet of Worms and he says that popes and councils have erred, he's not just throwing that out there. Luther can name the errors of the popes and the councils that have come before. And the, the supposed infallibility of the heir to Peter's throne in Rome, that is the pope, when he speaks ex cathedra and he speaks infallibly as the vicar of Christ on earth, well, how can he be contradicting a previous vicar of Christ on earth? How can he be saying that, you know, how can this one pope be saying one thing and this other pope a decade later, or remember during the Great Schism, even at the same time when you have a pope in Rome and a pope in France, how can these two vicars of Christ on earth be contradicting each other? So Luther, sure. he, he knows his scripture, and he also knows his church history. Uh, and if I, if I can go this far, I think that's an important thing that a lot of evangelical Christians today neglect. We, a lot of us, know scripture and we can all know it better myself included certainly but we can all know church history better and we all need to be able to when we have our Roman Catholic neighbors and friends being able to quote Roman Catholic documents councils and popes to them is a way to help them actually and Luther understood that uh, and and he used that throughout his life and ministry uh, to win over Roman Catholics what were some of the debates that uh, that Luther had engaged in? I know he, he engaged uh, um, several Catholic apologists. I was just maybe we could talk about that for a second. Some of the 
the discussions and what they were about. Well, I was going to oh, say sorry, this. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the matter of indulgence looms very large. And I guess maybe we should do a little bit of a clarification about what that represents in the Roman Catholic scheme of salvation. Um, for example, and then let's just sort of start from the beginning. When an when a infant is baptized in the Roman Catholic scheme, they are regenerated. They are now a, a Christian. Uh, not yet a saint, <laughs> but what they've entered into the physical, visible kingdom of God on earth. And from that point on, they need to deal with the sin that comes into their life. Well, from the Roman Catholic position, because no one is ever fully sanctified before they die, and because only the righteous inherit heaven, they must go someplace to purge their sins. If they didn't access every means of grace from the church, and if they didn't live completely according to God's law, they die with sins on their soul, and they've got to go someplace to purge it. So the doctrine of purgatory is invented for for a good reason to to lift up the the notion that you only the righteous inherit heaven. So because they didn't have the just living by faith, as Seth alluded to earlier in quoting Romans, um, they had to wait in purgatory. Now then there comes this notion that you can shorten the time that your loved ones spend in purgatory by doing an act of indulgence. And even to this very day, the church, uh, not just finances, you can do certain tasks and events that will serve as an indulgence that will shorten your time in purgatory. In fact, in the year 2000, the Pope at the time said, if you walk through this specific door at St. Peter's in Rome, it will be an indulgence for you. So large lines of Roman Catholics were waiting outside to walk through this one door of the, the cathedral, the Basilica of, of St. Peter's. So Martin Luther really went after that notion of the fact that you could purchase or do something that was outside of the work of Christ to you know, earn some kind of righteousness, and in, first of all, just justifying the very fact that there is such a place called purgatory. I mean, this has been a long-standing debate within the Protestant Roman Catholic discussion, and to my um, understanding, it's still a doctrine that is adhered in the Roman Catholic Church. If I remember correctly, and, and I don't have it in front of me, so maybe I shouldn't say anything, but I, if you get a copy of the Roman Catholic English Bible, what is it? The, uh, uh, is that the New, New Jerusalem? Oh. Yeah, I believe so. The official Roman Catholic Bible uh, in English. There should be a page in the front that has the papal imprintur, and and there are certain indulgences given for reading your Bible still today <laughs> wow. in in modern printed Roman Catholic Bibles. Um, um, as long as you publish so, their uh, purchase their version of it. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going to get any time off of purgatory for reading the King James Bible. 
<laughs> That's purgatory enough. <laughs> but um, so so Kent mentioned indulgences and the debate around that 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 you know led up to some of the the actions of Luther in 1517, and I, I guess I kind of uh, glazed over previously. Um, what Luther did between 1517, when he nailed the 95 Theses, and 1521, where he's called before uh, Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, he wasn't just lying around doing nothing. Uh, Luther, uh, he, he, when, when he comes into the Diet of Worms, there's a huge pile of his printed works there. But I wanted to mention a couple of them that are very substantial, very important, and still very applicable today. Um, he, he printed a book uh, his, entitled The Treatise on Good Works uh, that showed how faith in Christ was, strictly speaking, the only good work that God expected from repentant sinners. This was really different from what the Roman Catholics taught about good works and about uh, you know, earning grace for yourself based on your good works. Uh, he wrote a very controversial uh, pamphlet called The Papacy of Rome where he actually calls the Pope the Antichrist. And he does this because the Pope claimed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, but at that time he's, he's actually keeping people from understanding and obeying the message of the gospel. Uh, he wrote another one called An Address to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. And in this one he calls for the German nobles of the, the Alps to throw off tyranny, uh, not just spiritual but economic and political as well that kept them in servitude to Rome. So that's another aspect altogether of Luther's writings. But he's, you can see he's making these, uh, these attacks from all these different angles, not because he, I don't think he's doing it because he's looking to pick a fight, but he's discovering all of these areas where the church has gotten things wrong. And so he sets out to try to correct as much of this as he can. Another uh, very important one is his work called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, where he... Uh, he, he discusses and examines the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, and he comes to the conclusion that, you know, I can only find baptism and the Lord's table as, as sacraments in Scripture. Um, so why do we have seven? And if you know about Roman Catholic theology today, they still acknowledge seven sacraments, and Protestants acknowledge two sacraments. So this is a really important work, and these are all published between the time of the posting of the 95 Theses and Luther being called uh, in at the Diet of Worms. And then we mentioned him translating the New Testament into German after the Diet of Worms, but he also uh, prepared a revised church order for worship. Remember, going to church meant sitting down and hearing a monk rattle off a mass in Latin that you didn't speak up until this point. So Luther creates this uh, uh, revised church order, this revised order of worship, that is drastically different from what you would be used to hearing every Sunday or every day uh, in a mm -hmm. Roman Catholic Mass. And, and the biggest difference is that you're going to hear it in German now, if you're in Germany. So, so Luther has all of these things coming out, and of course the Roman Catholics, they want to answer these things. And so there are these debates that Luther, Luther is involved with, with sacraments and church order and politics uh, and works and faith, all of these things, and, and so Luther is just writing and writing and writing. So it's not just the 95 Theses that caused the Protestant Reformation. That's really just the initial spark that sets off this fire uh, of printing and of uh, 
attempts to correct theology within the church. All right, well, that's uh, that's good stuff. Let's take let's go ahead and take a break real quick here. It's almost seven o'clock uh, Eastern time, so we'll just take a three four minute break, and then when we come back, maybe we can uh, look at maybe a little more uh, some of uh, Roman Catholic teaching, and also maybe we could t- also take a look at the five solas and uh, just kind of see how they fit in fit into the whole scheme of things and some of the differences between Protestant and uh, and Catholic theology. So, uh, is that good with you, gentlemen? We'll go ahead and take a break real quick, and then we'll come back and uh, and hit it again. Sounds good. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on it called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrines? Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there? Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. Reformed theology is biblical Christianity come into its own. And by that I mean Reformed theology is a desire to express biblical truth in its fullness in a biblical way. I love the way that B.B. Warfield once summarized Reformed theology in saying that Reformed theology believes that God saves sinners. What we mean, first of all, is that we have a high view of God. We believe that God is sovereign, that he is the ruler of all things by the word of his power, that he is the providential Lord of nations and of history. We have a high view of God's holiness, and we believe that that's one of the messages of the Bible that needs to be reemphasized, not just for discipleship, but for evangelism. We believe that message is vital to really sharing the gospel, and until a sinner comes to grips with the fact that he is rejecting a holy and sovereign God, the sinner doesn't realize the predicament that he's in. And we believe that God saves sinners. We're not people that are desperately sick. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're not really nice people with a few things that need to be cleaned up about us. 
We are sinners to the core. We also believe that God saves, not that God makes us savable, not that God makes us able to save ourselves, but that God actually does the saving, that it is He who reaches out and draws His children to Himself sovereignly and savingly. Reformed theology is simply attempting to do justice to what the Bible says about God, about salvation, about sinners, and about the totality of the Christian life and God's plan in this world. And so we seek to be, first and foremost, biblical Christians, Christians that believe the Bible, whose thoughts are molded after biblical teaching, and who live the Bible. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters, and we are discussing uh, the Protestant Reformation, some of the events that uh, led to the Reformation and the need for it, and talking a little bit about uh, Catholic theology compared to uh, Protestant theology and and, uh, some of the differences that uh, we see as you actually uh, get in and start uh, studying doctrine a little bit. Um. Let's see, I just wanted to make an announcement uh, real quick. The Apologetics Conference at Southern Evangelical Seminary is going to be in Indian Trail, North Carolina. It's going to be, uh, I think it's October 10th and 11th, the Friday and Saturday. And it's actually the biggest apologetics conference uh, in the nation. The SES has been doing it now for almost 20 years, and they're going to have some incredible speakers there. I think they have uh, Oz Guinness. Uh, Norm Geisler, Josh McDowell, Gary Habermas, and uh, there was actually going to be a debate uh, this this particular conference uh, between, I think it's going to be Jason Lyle and Dr. Hugh Ross on the uh, age of the earth, so, or the age of the universe, I should say. <laughs> so that ought to be a good time. So uh, those interested, ses.edu. You can check out for for some tickets to that. Uh, Me and my wife have been the last six years, and it's always a a good time every time we we go. So if you're in the area, check it out. You'd love to to go. All right, uh, Pastor Kent and Seth, are you guys there? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the, the five solas and kind of how they play into Protestant theology. Uh, Pastor Kent, maybe you could you could start us off with um, maybe Sola Scriptura and maybe the difference uh, between that view and, and Roman Catholicism and some of maybe some of the, the misunderstandings. Well, first of all, I, I will confess, is this a place to do that? That uh, as a pastor, I have a love-hate relationship with the Roman Catholic Church in a and I mean this in in all respect, almost every Sunday as I'm preaching through the Word, I can capture something that I think the Roman Catholic Church does well, and then I could say, here's where they're just not getting it. So when it comes to the notion of Scripture alone, this is probably one of our feistiest discussions related to the solas. First of all, the Roman Catholic Church does recognize Scripture as an authority, a clear authority. And, however, they supplement that authority with traditions, 
with councils, and they say that the church is an entity that has a higher place. It determines what the scriptures are, (laughs) and therefore, because they quote-unquote own the church, they are the ones who can tell you how to rightly interpret the scriptures. So the the great criticism that the Roman Catholics had of the Reformation is now look what you've done, Martin Luther. You're going to make everyone their own private pope, and they're going to be making their own pronouncements. They're going to be making their own interpretations of the scripture. You just created a great um, monster because, you, you need a magisterium to tell you what the scriptures say. And a lot of well-educated Protestants end up going back to the Roman Catholic Church for that very reason. They want a, they want the clear church answer to what the scripture says. But the rejoinder to that is that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't interpret a lot of scripture well because it depends so much on their other authorities, namely their tradition, canon law, as Seth had mentioned earlier, and um, traditions that cannot be substantiated by the scriptures. So we both say the scripture is really important. The Protestant Reformation says that's where all of our discussions have to start and not calling on other areas of authority to inform our doctrinal formulations. It has to come from Scripture alone. Well, let me ask you this uh, real quick, Pastor Ken. As we had put this show up on on our Facebook page and uh, and promoted it, um, my wife received a message from a, one of her friends who's a Roman Catholic, and mm-hmm. um, this, this consistent um, this consistent argument about the 40,000 uh, denomination problem that they they claim uh, sola scriptura, and if you stick to that, then you end up with forty thousand, you know, Protestant denominations, and everybody's kind of their own authority. How do you how do you answer that? I, I told that that's lady such we a would great uh, question. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. That really opens the door to a, a great discussion here because. Um, I'm doing a series at our own church here in, in Tennessee on the Apostles' Creed. Well, all Protestants and Roman Catholics embrace the, the Apostles' Creed. They embrace the Nicene Creed. We have at our core creedal affirmations um, to our faith. There's a slight interpretation to some of those words that are different, but a Protestant wants to go back to the earliest traditions of the church based on scripture. So, and I think that 40,000 is a, a little bit of um, an exact hyperbole there. There's not 40,000 Protestant denominations, but the point is taken that our our ultimate authority is scripture, but th- we also acknowledge that that scripture did does create a tradition, and that tradition is a, the creedal affirmations of the earliest church. So I'm going to go back to all of those early church uh, gatherings that formulated the doctrines of our faith. It keeps me from being a Jehovah Witness. It keeps me from being a Mormon. Those things that I affirm in those earliest confessions, we share those with the Roman Catholic Church. But once again, there's a little bit of an interpretation problem on some of those, those things listed there. 
So we really do believe in a, a Catholic church. I believe in a universal right. Christianity, but I sure. don't believe that it's Roman in flavor. <laughs> so I'll let yeah, that rest there. Maybe like Seth can play up. Yeah. So Protestants yeah, really okay. are creedal, and everyone thinks that the Roman Catholic Church owns that, and that's just not a, a, a fair assessment. What's the importance of creeds? Why, why uh, should why do should Protestants, uh, like you say, you know, you're, you're teaching through the Athanasian Creed, and uh, I I grew up in a Pentecostal assembly and got home, and uh, of course I never never heard about Reformed theology, but I never even heard about those creeds until I went to seminary and started studying some of those things. So just quickly before uh, I'll hand it over to Seth. Uh, what, what are some of the yeah. needs for the to hold on to those creeds? Well, to, to sort of allude to some of the things I said earlier, uh, the church always needs reforming because there's always someone new coming along wanting to bring an interpretation to what the scripture is. So um, one of the earliest formulations of a creed was the Nicene Creed in the, in the 300s because of the Arian controversy where Arius claimed that Jesus was the first created being and everything was created through him and after him. And that didn't sit well with a Trinitarian understanding of the Godhead, if you will. And so the the Nicene Creed and subsequently many of the creeds that came after that was was really trying to define what it meant to be Trinitarian Christians the person and work of Christ, and how to deal with those who teach contra-Orthodox biblical understanding of the Scriptures. So those creeds help to put people in Orthodox Christianity or out of it. So those early meetings of bishops and early church fathers helped create creeds to, to combat heresy because it's not fair to say anymore, or I read it in the Bible. This is what the Bible says. There's context for everything that the Bible says, and you've got to bring that out. So the creeds help formulate all of that expansive work of the of the scriptures and boils them down into some affirmations of which we're all to agree. Yeah, Seth, I'll, I'll get your opinion on this too, and maybe you can you can answer this uh, the question of kind of kind of the charge, I guess, is more of uh, instead of a question, but the charge is made that uh, with Sola Scriptura, it's just me and my Bible and my own interpretation and uh, no need for teachers or even the church because, you know, I've got my Bible and that's all I need. How do, how well, do, how do you, you answer know, that? Well, the first thing I would say is, did you get that opinion out of the Bible? <laughs> because if you actually search Scripture, you'll see that some men have been given in the church to be teachers and some evangelists, et cetera, et cetera. Paul lists out these offices. There's a reason why we have in the church the office of pastor or teacher, the office of elder, the office of deacon. These things are good things, and the reason that they exist in Scripture, excuse me, the reason why they exist in the church is because they're found in Scripture. So to, to the Christian out there that says, I've got my Bible, I don't need the church, I don't need any, anybody else to tell me what to believe, I've got my Bible, I would gently encourage them to say, okay, you've got your Bible. 
tell me what it says about someone else teaching you. Because if you read Scripture, uh, uh, Scripture should engender in every Christian a deep sense of humility. That should be one of the first things that comes out of a study of Scripture, how little I know, how little I, what a little creature I am, a, a worm, as David calls himself. Uh, so it, there is a sense of, a, of pride that comes into play when someone says, I've got my Bible, I don't need anything else. Now, mm. the other extreme of that is the Roman Catholic position that says, you don't even need your Bible. The church will tell you everything you need to know, and the idea that you have the, the pompous pride to say that your interpretation of Scripture differs with that of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, uh, you're, you're just full of yourself, and you need to get that Protestant idea out of your head. And, and then, you know, comes the charge of 40,000 denominations because everybody's interpreting Scripture as they see fit. Um, I, I think the balance there needs to be found in Scripture. Uh, go to Scripture. What does the Scripture say? Does the Scripture say, don't read Scripture? don't learn how to live a Christian life from Scripture? No. In answer to the Roman Catholics, it certainly does not say that. It, we're to study to show ourselves approved. We're supposed to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. How can we do that without access to the oracles of God, the Holy Scripture? Does Scripture tell you that you're supposed to be a, a lone wolf Christian, that it's just you and your Bible against the world, and that this idea of gathering with other Christians and hearing what some other guy thinks Scripture says uh, is something you're to avoid. Does Scripture teach that? No. Scripture teaches that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Scripture teaches that we're supposed to come together for word and sacrament, to be edified, encouraged, and, and to be taught. Now, here's, here's a, an important caveat to that. If I'm sitting in church on Sunday morning, and I don't care if I'm in the most reformed Protestant church in the world, and the pastor says something that is clearly in contradiction to Scripture, I have the right as a Christian to approach him and say, Pastor, you said something that contradicts with Scripture. And, and it, I'll, I'll be honest, it doesn't happen very often if you're in a good reformed church. <laughs> but <laughs> as, as Christians, not just as Protestants, if all Christians have that right to appeal to Scripture, which is the final authority, the only authority for all matters spiritual. And that's what that doctrine of sola scriptura is about. We always have the right to appeal back to Scripture. It doesn't matter if it's our pastor or if it's a pope or if it's a king or an emperor. If they say you do X and, by the, and Scripture says you do not do X, well, let God be true and all men are liars. As Martin Luther said, here I stand. You know, I, I, if you, unless you can show me from Scripture how I'm wrong, then, then I'm not changing my mind. Um, we talked a, a little bit about creeds and uh, creedal statements. I wanted to quote really briefly from a, a confession of faith that was written a little over a century after Martin Luther, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which was written in England in the 1600s, uh, and what it has to say about Scripture and church councils and creeds, because I think it says it very well. Now, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1. This is uh, Section 10. It says that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, 
doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. And that, to me, is a very beautiful articulation of the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. Yes, ancient councils are good things. Doctrines that the church comes up with, they're not always bad. Church councils don't always err. But if they do err, or if there's a question as to whether or not they've erred, then the final authority that we're supposed to judge that decision by is not the church and it's not the magisterium, but it's the Holy Spirit himself speaking in Scripture. And that's, that's what the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura is all about, is that final appeal to Scripture. Show me in the Bible where it says to do this, and I'll do it. Yeah, because I know there's, I get a lot of, uh, you know, when, when talking with uh, with Catholics, and um, kind of going back to something Pastor uh, Kent said as well, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for Roman Catholicism and the school that I attend uh, they're big on philosophy and uh, uh, do a lot of study of Thomas Aquinas and I really appreciate you know much of Catholic thinking and uh, the philosophers and a lot of their theology so I don't hope I, uh, I don't think the show is coming across at all like with this Catholic bashing um, or anything like that, but one of the, one of the other charges that come up a lot is um, uh, the claim. For example, I've even had it brought up as far as well. You you go to a church with pews, and um, you know you use a, a sound system, and you know these type of things, a pro- projection screen, and where's that in the Bible? Um, so some of those, I know there seems just to be a lot of mischaracterizations of what Sola Scriptura is as far as it, you know, being, some people think it's the only source of knowledge or unless it's in the Bible, we can't do it. Uh, Pastor Ken, maybe you could you could speak to, speak to that a little bit. Well, you're bringing up a, a great healthy debate that the church has to have. You know, here's here's kudos to the Roman Catholic Church. If you go to a Roman Catholic church in Sheboygan and you go to a Roman Catholic church in, you know, Fresno, it's going to probably feel pretty similar (laughs) Um, because the Roman Catholic church does their liturgy. And so um, there's some real comfort in that because if if you're quote-unquote church shopping, you just don't know what you're going to get when you walk through the door. You don't know if there's going to be a band or smoke coming off the stage or a pastor riding in on his motorcycle um, during the service. Although I have seen some pretty crazy YouTube videos of Roman Catholic churches and their uh, observance of the Lord's table, which I, I they don't even call it that. Anyway, um, so related to the to the what could be prescribed for what we do in church there is a healthy discussion in in protestantism a lot of the reformed like the phrase the regulative principle what are the things that the scriptures say we ought to do in a worship service and the discussion is should we only do what the bible specifically says we should do or is there freedom to do things that are not specifically condemned well, in most Protestant churches, you're going to find 
a pretty regular order of service. You're going to have a call to worship. You're going to have confession of sin. You're going to have the assurance of pardon. You're going to have prayers, singing of songs and psalms, the exhortation of the word, not just a short homily, but really teaching and instructing what God's word has to say, hopefully in a a consistent way. There will be the observance of the sacraments, either baptism or the Lord's table. Uh, There will be offertory, which is also worship. And there will also be a benediction. Those are like standard Reformed elements that you'll find in every Reformed church. We do have a liturgy, but that's all founded on what we read in the scriptures that has been prescribed by New Testament example. Um, And that's why we perform the services in in the manner that we do. The rest of the discussion is a healthy debate about why are you introducing new things into the church service that, aren't needed. I mean, the Holy Spirit works through word and sacrament. Why are you bringing in drama teams? That's just not a part of what the scripture um, addresses as far as the early meetings of the church and, and subsequently in our day. We work through word and sacrament. And stop trying to invent new ways to get people's attention. God can do that really well by his own through the preaching of his word. Seth, did you have anything yeah. you wanted to add to that? Well, yeah, I think since... Let me give the phone number out real quick. We've got 35 minutes. I want to make sure uh, if people want to call, feel, feel free to call uh, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Any Catholics um, or Protestants, feel free to, or, or anyone else, uh, feel free to give us a call, 760-542-3907. Go ahead, Seth. Didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, not at all. Uh, no, I was just going to say I agree, of course, with everything that, that Kent just said. Um, he mentioned this idea of the regulative principle of worship, and I just wanted to explain what that was uh, for, for folks who might be unfamiliar with that because it's sort of a term that's fallen out of use. The idea of the regulative principle of worship, and this came out of the Protestant Reformation, was the idea that God himself has instituted how he is to be worshipped. And if God has instituted how he himself is to be worshipped, then we shouldn't be adding on to that or taking away from it. So Kent mentioned several things that you would find in, I'm I'm guessing every, I should say most, Protestant churches today, uh, those that are more in the tradition of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, you'll probably find them... uh, most definitely in those churches, things like prayers, singing, uh, singing of psalms, uh, preaching of the word, the sacraments, uh, these things are, and a lot, I should also add, a lot and a lot of scripture reading. That was a, a big item during the Reformation was reading scripture a lot in your worship services so that the people hear it. Uh, there, there's preaching, and preaching is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to convert souls but the people have to hear Scripture because they have to know Scripture. And so if you're in a, in a Reformed or a Presbyterian worship service, you're going to hear a lot of Scripture. You're going to hear us reading Scripture, praying Scripture, singing Scripture, and preaching Scripture. Um, Kent also mentioned, uh, you know, 
if, if the means that the Holy Spirit uses are word and sacrament to convert souls, to regenerate hearts, then why are we bringing in the drama team? Why are we bringing in the, the, uh, the worship, the rock and roll band? Okay, why are we doing these sorts of things? If word and sacrament is what we need. I, I, I just want to tag on to that. It's, it's not just why are we doing that, but this isn't the first time the church has done that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these sorts of add-ons, these things to keep the people interested and to wow the crowds, this was going on at the time of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic pageantry was just that. It was, wow. it was pageantry. There was a lot of stuff happening in those worship services that when folks turned back to Scripture, they realized not only, hey, we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this, but we don't need to do this. Because the Word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Holy Spirit working through Scripture is going to do more than the dramatization of uh, the crucifixion is ever going to be able to accomplish. Hmm. Yet the, with all due respect to those people who minister in this field, the puppet team is not going to do the job. They're not substituting what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And, and that was a big thing at the time of the Reformation was a return to Scripture and the pure preaching of God's Word. Kent mentioned the difference between you know, a Protestant uh, service and a, a, a Roman Catholic service. Is some, you, you can sum it up in the difference between a homily and a sermon. A homily is a, a brief talk about a passage of Scripture. A sermon is generally much longer than a homily, and it's usually in much, it's much more detailed than a homily would be as well. If you walk in right. against church this next Sunday, you're going to hear Scripture expounded in detail for, I'm guessing, mm. a good 30 or 45 minutes. Uh, and that, some people might be shocked at a sermon that, that, that's that long, but that's, that's a direct uh, descendant of the tradition of the Protestants at the time of the Reformation. Preach God's Word, because that's, the scriptural means that we're told in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is going to use that preaching the Word to convert souls. So there's a heavy emphasis on preaching that you still find today in, in Reformed churches. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like you say, a lot of that's in the Reformed churches. I know in a lot of the other Protestant churches that are not Reformed, you really don't see... Um, you don't see a lot of that, um, not not all the time, but it's. I think that is one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons I think um, so many in American Christianity, evangelicals, really just seem to be clueless as far as doctrine goes in a lot of ways. I think, one, because we really have uh, given up the creeds, and when you say those week after week and you memorize them, you're being forced to, to learn doctrine. You're being forced... Uh, mm-hmm. To know those things, and so I just, man, I, I think it's such a good thing uh, for evangelicals to to recover, and and I do, I I see merit in what the Catholics are saying as far as um, you know the beauty of of liturgy and the need for the creeds and and that as well. But like you guys say, it's, that's not a Roman Catholic invention. I mean, that's um, you know it's been around for a long time, so. Maybe we could talk, we got about 30 minutes, maybe we could talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the material cause of the Reformation and uh, the issue of justification. 
So maybe, Pastor Kent, uh, maybe you can explain to us a little what is the Roman Catholic view and um, comparing that to the Protestant view. And let me let me say this. Um, it seems to me, at least, uh, as I talk with other evangelicals, especially those who are not in the Reformed camp, it seems as though the reason most of them are not Roman Catholic is because of preference. It's not because of serious doctrinal issues. It's almost like, well, I like vanilla, you like chocolate type of a thing. It's not because they would say uh, Roman Catholic teaches Roman Catholicism on this area uh, of justification. It's it's a real divide. It's a serious issue, and in good conscience, I couldn't I couldn't go there. Talk to us a little bit about that. Is this is this just an issue that is you know like because you see when when Protestants go to Catholicism, some treat it like it's no different than a Pentecostal becoming a Baptist. Uh, so is it is it significant or is it just something that we shouldn't worry so much about? Yeah, no, that's such a great question because um, there is a there's a always a steady stream of people who were raised Protestant and then they end up going to the Roman Catholic Church and they end up saying something. Well, this is historic. This is ancient. What is going on in today's church is just a fad, and they're just trying to appeal to filling the seats and not discipling anyone. And if you become a Roman Catholic, there's still this catechumen process where you get to go through an education process before you're officially brought into the Roman Catholic Church. That doesn't happen in a lot of Protestant churches. You you become a member after just going to a little um, weekend orientation. So um, there's some something about the Roman Catholic Church that it, that appeals to people who want substance. Now, having said that, there's plenty of people who join the Roman Catholic Church that don't obey what the church teaches. I I see my friends on Facebook directly contradicting the Pope in some of the things that they hold in view. And it's it's not fair to say there's 40,000 Protestant denominations because the, the Roman Catholic Church has just as many schisms <laughs> within their own church. And, um, for example, there's a lot of intellectuals who are in the Roman Catholic Church that would not, dare consider uh, a conversation about relics you know and the adoration of relics or saints or they just don't they just don't see that as being a part of their catholicism so a lot of us as christians are picking and choosing what we want but when it comes down to the material um aspect of the reformation and the doctrine of justification, this is so huge because we're talking about the core of what the gospel says and our relationship to God in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. So the the Roman Catholic Church today and the Protestant Church today defines justification differently. And so can I just take a moment to address that? Oh, please, please do, please do. Okay, I know I feel like I'm doing preamble on everything here. Um, let me just read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33, that asks the question, what is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace 
wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Another sola, the Reformation. So if you're able to dissect that definition, you have a God who declares sinners to be just, to be righteous. They still sin. They still have their hang-ups and their burdens. But because Christ in his life, in his obedience and every thought, word, and deed to the law of God, was able to be a substitutionary atonement for sins, and on the cross, our sins were laid upon him, and he bore the weight and the wrath of God for our sins, but his righteousness by the power of the Spirit is imputed to us so that we are seen and is accepted as a a righteous son of God, so that when God when we stand before God and he looks at us, he says, you're exactly the person I want you to be. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Roman Catholic Church cannot assure anyone of such a claim. They believe that justification and sanct- justification for the Roman Catholic Church is when you finally leave purgatory and you can get to enter into heaven. Roman Roman Catholics confuse justification and sanctification, and in Protestantism, you are declared righteous, and because the Spirit of God is working in you, He has given you a right standing before God, and now He's teaching you uh, by all the disciplines of the Church uh, how to live a more righteous life. That piety that Seth referenced very early on in our conversation. So, so let me ask that, you this. That's, go ahead. Yeah, let me, let me ask you this. Uh, can both views be true? Because they, they appear to be saying, the both views of justification, they appear to be saying polar opposites, right? You have, uh, what, infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness. Very good. And, yeah, it seems that they both cannot be true. Right, and you see this kind of with the dialogue um, with evangelicals and Catholics, um, as though it's just the Catholics have just another way of looking at it, or the Protestants have another way. But they seem to be saying diametrically opposed things, so they can't mm-hmm. both be true, can they? Well, this classic discussion. I'll let Seth chime in here soon. This classic discussion of the Roman Catholics and Protestants is. You know, what is the source of your salvation? And then there's a discussion, well, we're saved by the merits of Christ. And I think we both agree on that statement. The question is, how are those merits applied? And from a Protestant, and I say a biblical perspective, look at all the verses that tell us that we are holy, blameless, righteous in Christ. I mean, that is that is our standing over and over again. In Paul's letter, he addresses us as saints, holy. That is our standing before God. The Roman Catholic Church says you're only holy after some type of process, some uh, application of meritorious works on your behalf 
by obtaining some gracious storehouse that Jesus and the saints have, you're still it's still dependent on you to access the merit. Whereas in Protestantism, it is a declared righteousness. Seth, you want to add to that? Well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I of course agree with with everything that Kent just said. Um, and and Devin, you mentioned the difference between an infused infused righteousness, and I think it's important that this phrase that I'm going to use, the alien righteousness of Christ, hmm. is a very important uh, doctrine to understand. There is no righteousness in us. There is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, nothing. We contribute nothing to our own salvation. The Protestants affirmed this doctrine when they denied the, the, the Roman doctrine of this infused righteousness, that God makes us righteous, he infuses righteousness into us. No, that's not what happens. What happens is Christ, satisfaction of God's justice through his obedience to the law and his death on the cross is accounted to us as righteousness. There's no righteousness in me. I understand this as a Christian from Scripture. There's no righteousness in me. The only way that I am righteous before God is by having the person and work and blood of Christ applied to me uh, through, through faith which is itself a gift from God. So there's nothing, I mean, not even, I don't even contribute my own faith to my salvation. That itself is a gracious gift of God uh, that, and through faith, uh, the justification of Christ is applied to me. Uh, so, so big difference there between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Protestants say there's nothing that I do to contribute to my own salvation because there's nothing righteous in me. It's purely the substitutionary work of Christ uh, through that that I am able to stand as righteous before God's throne. Let me ask you this. One of the things that come up a lot in some of my discussions with Catholics is um, there, there's a book that came out not long ago. I'm, trying to, I'm not sure exactly when, but it's called um, uh, Justification Five Views. And some of the contributors are Michael Horton, James D.G. Dunn, and, and some other guys. And so I've heard some, some Roman Catholics make this argument as, uh, well, even within Protestantism, there's numerous views of justification. Uh, so if you don't, you know, have just your view right, then I guess everybody else is, is wrong. Um, and some of the examples they would give is like the Lordship versus Free Grace uh, issue, and they say that's an example of a different view of justification. What are what are some of your guys' thoughts on that? Are there multiple views uh, in Protestantism, and, and how do we deal with that? Well, you know, uh, first of all, right off the bat, my response would be yes. So what? <laughs> I don't mean to be to be uh, you know harsh in my response, but. Yeah, there's multiple views on just about anything that there possibly can be multiple views on. But, but again, Protestants, proper Protestants, shouldn't be forming their doctrine based on what other Protestants think. We should be going back to Scripture and saying, what does Scripture say about this? And if my brother, you know, in, in the church down the street has a different view of justification, well then, why don't he and I sit down 
with our Bibles open and see what Scripture says about this and attempt to win the other person over based on reasoning from the Scriptures, like Paul always did, was his custom, to reason from the Scriptures. And, yeah, we're going to have differences of opinion, but by God's grace, those opinions need to be informed by what Scripture says. Um, so, I, again, I, I get a sense that the Roman Catholic who raises that argument is almost going back to the argument of church councils say this. Well, Protestant churches say this, so you must be wrong. Well, my authority is Scripture. Councils have erred. Popes have erred. Protestant denominations have erred. And the authority that I'm appealing to is not, you know, the Southern Baptist Church or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church. The authority that I'm appealing to is Scripture itself. So, so Mr. Roman Catholic, who's making that argument, show me in Scripture where my view of justification is wrong. Because you can quote the position paper of the megachurch down the street to me all you want, but that's not what my faith or my doctrine is based on. My faith and doctrine is based on Scripture. So let's reason from Scripture together, and, and you can show me, or attempt to show me where I'm wrong, and I will show you where the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. One thing we would agree with, though, I think, is that all, all Protestant views, um, regardless of what they are of justification, um, they would all assume a um, imputed view of Christ's righteousness, right? I mean, you may, I guess, have some differences as far as the lordship and uh, free grace. Or, to be honest, I don't even see how that plays in, into how that would would have anything to do with justification, but it gets brought up. Um but with the Roman Catholic view, it's it's like a whole different. It just seems like a whole different animal. Uh, it's the whole different, you know, uh, versus the alien righteousness of Christ versus infused righteousness. It just seems to be a whole other category. So maybe, would you guys say maybe there's different degrees or views of of um, justification within Protestantism? Um, where they may differ in degree but not substance as compared to, like, Roman Catholicism, where it just seems to be a whole different thing altogether. What, what, what do you guys think about that? Well, every Protestant church that is denominationally based um, will have some kind of documentation on what they think justification is. A whole host of them will agree on what I have read in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, you go back to that particular document from the 1640s, you have um, the Parliament of England saying, let's define exactly what the church, or what the Bible teaches. So a ton of denominations um, use that in some manner or shape to inform their understanding of of justification and, and other doctrines. But a lot of non-denominational churches, I can't tell you what they embrace. You, you have to go to a website, and usually they tell you what we believe, and it's kind of like a summer camp statement, you know, about what the Christian faith is, and there's not enough information there. So I think my point is saying a lot of the denominations that are Protestant kind of harken back to the Westminster Confession and confessions like it by footnoting their doctrinal statements with scripture passages. In the Roman Catholic 
scheme, its justification means the day you enter into heaven and you have no idea when that happens. <laughs> in the Protestant scheme, it's you are to take confidence of the assurance of your salvation in the work of Christ on your behalf. Yeah, and, and if I can just add to that, I mean, Devin, you brought up, you know, if, if a Roman Catholic comes to you and asks you this question, well, what about this view of justification versus this view versus this view, this, excuse me, versus, you know, whatever your view happens to be? I, I mean, politely speaking, that to me is a bit of, of lazy apologetics on the part of the Roman Catholic. If I'm going to talk to a Roman Catholic about his view of justification, I'm not going to raise, well, you know, Anglicans believe this. What do you think about that? Or, or you know, there's this view of justification, this view of justification. I want, I want your view. I want you to tell me what you think about your view. And if the Roman Catholic comes to me, a, a Reformed Presbyterian, and he says, well, you know, the United, the United Methodist Church down the street says this about justification, and you say something else, uh, you know, what, what do you have to say about that? Well, you know, right. I, I don't, I'm not a United Methodist. Do your homework. Challenge <laughs> me on what the Reformed Presbyterians believe about what my, and here we go back to, what my creed, what my confession states. And those documents become extremely helpful to the Christian in situations just like this. Because as Kent mentioned, right. most churches that have some sort of denominational affiliation, uh, whether it be United Methodist or Southern Baptist or Orthodox Presbyterian or whatever the case may be, uh, they're going to have some confession of uh, faith, some statement of belief that supposedly everybody in those churches agrees with. Um, <laughs> But, but again, you go down to the, the non-dominational or the mega church down the street, and the nine times out of ten, what you're going to find is exactly what Kent said, this sort of uh, summer camp statement of faith. I kind of like that description of it. But they're, they're reinventing the wheel. Like, guys, these doctrines have been hammered out and inked in the blood of martyrs over the centuries. Please use them. <laughs> you, you don't have to ditch them just because they're old. There's reasons why these documents exist and why they have been so useful to the church over the centuries. Um, so, so again, I, I as, a, as a Presbyterian, would appeal to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Catechism that Kent quoted, and say, look, this is what I believe Scripture teaches, because I'm not appealing to the Confession, I'm appealing to Scripture as the authority, and the Confession is the summary of that, that uh, summary of Scripture's teaching on a certain point. I'm appealing to Scripture, and this is what I believe Scripture teaches about justification, sanctification, works, the church, etc., etc., all these topics that are covered in Westminster Confession of Faith and documents like it, like Kent mentioned. They're really, really useful tools that the modern American church has in a large part abandoned for whatever reason. Well, let me ask you guys, how, how big is this issue? What, what is at stake uh, in this issue of, of justification? Is it a second-order issue? Is it a first-order issue? Uh, what's at stake in this in this debate? Well, you're, you're sort of hearkening to the very famous quote of Martin Luther said that this was the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. If you don't get justification right, you're probably going to be in a works-righteousness fellowship <laughs> of some kind and you're going to miss the completed work of Christ, who upon the cross says, it is finished. 
So it, it's foundational, and it's it's a number one point of teaching that I have with my own children, with with youth groups that I've led, is to understand and to know justification. It's it's all important. Seth, yeah. what would you what would you add to that? Yeah, I would add to that. Um, um, sorry, my just totally lost my train of thought there. Justification is the all-important doctrine. Here, here's what I was going to say. Um, if you misunderstand justification, look, the proper view of justification is that it's all of God, it's all of grace, it's all through Christ. That's the, the, the very brief summary of the proper view of justification, that I don't contribute anything to my own salvation. That I'm justified through the works of Christ, and that's applied to me through faith, which is a gift of God. If you mess that up, even on a what seems like a minor point, then your salvation is not all of God. It's God plus you, or God plus the church, or God plus something else. And and when you add something else to that equation, you're you're adding something else that ought to be worshipped besides God. Even if you don't live that out consistently, the the end of that thinking is that there's something else that has contributed to my salvation. God, Not just God, but me or the church or someone else has also contributed to my salvation, so it wasn't all of God. So not all of the glory needs to go to God, because after all, God didn't do everything. I did a little bit, or the church did a little bit for me, or this guy down the street did a little bit for me, whatever the case may be. And, and immediately, I, I hope it's clear to Christians why this doctrine is so important. Because if it's not all of God, then God doesn't get all the glory. And if God's not getting all the glory, then we're not living as Christians ought to live. Because the chief end of man is to glorify God. And if you're not glorifying God 100% because salvation is all of God, then you're going to be living a very different life than the Christian who acknowledges that it's all of God and therefore all glory goes to God, and, and as Luther said, all of my life needs to be lived as a life of repentance to God, because it's all of God. It's all the glory needs to be given to God. I need to be living accordingly. Devin. Yes, sir. Let me, let me, let me ask, add two things. The, uh, the Roman Catholic Church understood justification at the Protestant Reformation. They had their own counter-reformation. They came up with the Council of Trent, and in that council, they basically anathematized anyone who said that they could know assuredly that they were saved by faith alone. So that was a historic statement of the Roman Catholic Church. But I don't, I don't know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches anymore. It's morphing. It's basically becoming everyone is saved now. They, they just are anonymous members of the Roman Catholic Church. So... Uh, you know, you can look up Catholic definition of justification, and you're you're going to be awash in material. I don't know what they teach anymore about it. I know what they said in the 1500s, and they anathematized the Protestant understanding of it. So um, I'm willing to have a, a Roman Catholic give me a clear explanation of what justification is for them. I know what I've read, and it's it's by the it's only when you get in heaven you're justified. 
Yeah, that's one question I, I've had as well, um, because the Council of Trent is still binding on, on Roman Catholics, isn't that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, so I just it, it makes you wonder how we can be brothers uh, when basically they do. They anathematize those who who hold to the Protestant view of of, um, of justification. So, well, gentlemen, we got a, uh, about two minutes left. Do you guys want to give us a couple couple thoughts and give us a conclusion as we wrap the show up? <laughs> I love Jesus, and I'm thankful for His Church. And it's it's great to hear Seth again. I miss having conversations with him from uh, our days in California. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thank you. It's it's really nice to hear your voice again, Kent. Uh, and uh, Devin, thank you so much for allowing me to come on and and have this conversation with you. I I think it's an extremely important conversation to be having, and I think every Christian in the United States and throughout the world uh, needs to know why there was a Protestant Reformation. Uh, not just the history of it, but like you said, why why does it matter still today? Um, yeah. And if you don't know the answer to that question, then you're missing a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge about God's providence throughout history, and a lot of the justification for why we do what we do today. No matter what what church you're in, whether it be Presbyterian or non-denominational or Baptist or whatever it may be. Why do you do, I would I would challenge your listeners to ask the questions, why do I do the things that I do in church on Sunday morning? If you can't answer that question, then do a little study. Look into the history of your particular church, and I guarantee you you're going to be led back to the Protestant Reformation at one point or another. Um, and, and study the Reformation. Read the Reformers. Read Luther and Calvin. Uh, read... The, the councils, the Council of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, these are wonderful documents. You might be thinking, but I'm not a Presbyterian. Uh, I'm not a Lutheran. What good will it do me? Believe me, even if you're not a Presbyterian, there is so much in there that is going to encourage you in your walk, walk with Christ. Uh, and, and you're going to be pointed back to Scripture again and again and again as you read through those documents of the Reformation and that's never a bad thing for a Christian, to be driven back to Scripture over and over again. All right, gentlemen, that will do it for our time. I really appreciate you guys coming on and look forward to having you guys on again in the future. Thanks, Devin. Thank you, Devin. Great to meet with you. All right, guys, God bless. All right, God bless you, too. All right, folks, and uh, join us next week. We were gonna we're gonna continue our series on the Reformation. We'll have my good friend Nate uh, Taylor back on, who's been on here several times before, and we will be looking in depth at, at the issue of uh, sola scriptura for two hours, and we are gonna hopefully have some Roman Catholics call in. So, um, letting letting the Roman Catholics know you guys are invited to call. Would love to have good uh, friendly dialogue with you. And then the week after, we're going to be doing um, uh, Sola Fide and Justification by Faith Alone and hopefully get some more calls. And then we'll close out our series on October 31st, Reformation Day, with a a replay of the debate uh, that happened in December between Nate Taylor and Devin Rose on the issue of Sola Scriptura. So join us again next week on Theology Matters. God bless. 
It must not be forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable where living faith and definite truth dwell side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the Reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through the entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured, controversy will result. Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, he said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrines of grace. God will use it to the bestowing of blessing upon His church and upon His people. And it sets in right motion everything that is right in the church. The doctrines of grace purify our worship. It purifies our fellowship. It purifies our own spiritual lives. It sets in motion our ministries. It purifies our evangelism. It inflames our missions. This was part of the epicenter of the shock of the Reformation that was unleashed upon Europe and sent its earthquake effects across the Atlantic to reverberate here in the colonies of America. This is the preaching of the Reformation. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.